Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world. Among the things that you're never supposed to talk about at family gatherings, besides sex and religion, are hotly contested political topics like abortion. We've had one previous Spirit in Action program on abortion back in 2008. That one with Rachel McNair and Stan Becker. And today's Spirit in Action guest is bringing us a too little explored alternative to the pro-choice versus pro-life abortion wars. Aspen Becker's new book is Pro-Voice, How to Keep Listening When the World Wants a Fight. Aspen is a founder of Exhale and their nonpartisan and listening approach to women who've had abortions. Aspen's degree is in peace and conflict studies, and her work promises a way forward for many divisive issues besides abortion. Aspen Becker joins us by phone today from the San Francisco Bay Area of California. Aspen, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thanks so much for having me, Mark. I want to thank you so much for Pro Voice. It really is a voice that we need to hear. And as I told you before we got on the air, I've had concerns in this direction for such a long time. Uh, people who want to make it black and white. And it's so nice that you can feel comfortable in living with the gray. Was it hard for you to get to the point where you accepted gray? It was very hard, especially in the beginning when we started Exhale and we said, you know, we're going to make a talk line where women can call who've had abortions and they can talk about whatever they want and whatever what's going on with them. And the first thing that people usually asked me was, well, you're pro-choice, right? Or which side are you on? Are you pro-choice or pro-life? And we said, we're neither. And then people hung up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And so it took a long time to build relationships to talk with them about what we were trying to do. And some of the people I'm talking about are people who worked in abortion clinics because we wanted them to refer their patients to our hotline. And so initially as we were trying to carve out this space where we could just listen to women who'd had abortions, the pressure to really pick a side was incredibly strong and came with real consequences for me personally and for the organization. And no one really thought that we would survive or that we should survive. And and the only worthwhile way to be in the debate was to be fighting over the right to have or or not to have an abortion. In the beginning, because I was young 
and many of the people who were telling me that I was being naive were older and more experienced than me, I believed them and thought, well, maybe this is wishy-washy or maybe it is silly and soft. And then we realized that, you know, as much fighting has been happening for so long that there hasn't actually been a lot of change. Mm-hmm. and that we actually wanted to change the conversation. And you couldn't change the conversation if you kept doing everything the same way that everyone else was doing it. And so we decided that that place where everyone else was really uncomfortable, the gray areas, the places between pro-choice and pro-life, between right and wrong, between black and white, that we were going to make that place our home and get comfortable there. That has been our process. It's been incredibly difficult. People don't want you there. (laughs) But over time, it has gotten easier. And it's gotten easier because we talk about being pro-voice and talk about embracing these gray areas as a practice. It's something that you hone and develop over time. So that's what we do. We practice being pro-voice and we practice sitting in the gray areas. I'm tempted to ask you two ways in how you got there. I think I want to start with the societal path in the first place, just to go back over what happened since the 60s or maybe even the 50s up until this date about the the view of abortion. You do a nice job of covering that in the book. And again, folks, the book is Pro Voice, How to Keep Listening When the World Wants a Fight. So historically, you hit a couple points that I thought were terribly interesting. So again, give us the short view from the 60s up to now. Well, when I was looking at the history of how we got here, the question that I had is what has been the role of women who have had abortions in the leadership of both movements? And what has been the role of women's stories in shaping public discussion? And what I saw from both movements was not very much on the pro-choice side, that there is a long history of what we might call like a conscious constituent of somebody who is motivated to abortion rights because abortion touched someone that they loved and cared about, or they got active in what were the referral networks to underground abortion providers. So there was a huge movement of people who were helping women to get abortions, and thousands of women did get abortions. And it's still unclear what sort of happened to all of those women after they got the abortions. Sometimes the activists were the women who'd had abortions, but oftentimes it seems like it's two different groups, sort of one group providing help and the other group needing that help. So that was one interesting piece. And then the other piece was around the pro-life movement and how Roe v. Wade, which for many pro-choice activists felt like the culmination of a lot of political and cultural work and on-the-ground work was for what was pro-life activists a giant surprise and something that they felt was an abomination of what they knew to be true about the morals of our country. And so it motivated many people to get involved in activism, you know, against abortion. And the same but different in the pro-life movement was that there wasn't a lot of women who'd had abortions as a part of that movement at that time. There was a lot of pro-life women who were against abortion, but still the sort of voices and experiences of the people getting abortions was not present there either. So these sort of two realms of activists over time started fighting it out in lots of different ways. 
and the ongoing people getting abortions were increasingly marginalized and silenced and sort of off to the sides of the debate. And how do the numbers compare? You know, 1973, Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court makes that decision. So we go from having 16 states or so with some abortion allowed to it's nationwide now. How have the numbers gone up and down since then in terms of the actual number of abortions are being performed? Oh, that's a good question. So the Guttmacher Institute is really the organization that captures abortion data, and, and both sides use the Guttmacher Institute and see it as credible. Today, it's about one in three women in America will have an abortion in their lifetime. That has actually gone down since abortion was legalized. So it went up for a while, and it was almost like nearly half of women, and then the numbers have gone back down. One of the big sticking points in the conflict is, okay, well, Roe v. Wade said abortion is legal, but a lot of the work of the pro-life movement has been to make it inaccessible. So a lot of the laws that you hear get debated around ultrasounds or around informed consent or around parental notification or around traveling from state to state, you know, all these sort of things are being instituted to make it harder and harder for a woman to get an abortion. So this, the access question, is increasingly sort of the point of conflict. Does the fact that abortions legal matter if most women can't get it? Let's also talk about your personal path, Aspen, to how you got to having this tremendous concern. You mentioned in the book that you grew up as part of a non-denominational church and school. Uh, You call it surfing Christian, which (laughs) from the point of view of someone in Wisconsin, I haven't ever heard that term before. And then you got to a point in your early 20s when you actually had to confront having an abortion. So could you talk a little bit about how this became important to you? Yeah, like you said, I was raised in a Christian family and a Christian community, and everyone was pro-life. As a kid, the idea of an abortion made me incredibly sad, and I never thought it would be something that I would ever do. One thing about, you know, the the term I use, serpent Christians, is that there's a laid-backness to the kind of Christianity that I was raised with, which included the fact that I was raised believing in a God who's also loving and caring. And so there was sort of less damnation, <laughs> judgment, and, and more love and support. So, uh, so everyone thought abortion was wrong and no one should have abortions, but no one ever invited me to a protest. I, I didn't really know of, of any violence being perpetuated by members of our community, and certainly there were people in our community who got pregnant and had babies when they weren't married and everyone generally thought that that wasn't the best way to go and what a bummer, but also everyone was cared for, the woman and her child. She was a part of all of our community, so it wasn't like people got kicked out or anything like that. So the strong moral belief that abortion was wrong, but also being a part of a culture and a community that really cared for one another. But no one had ever told me that they'd had an abortion, and I certainly didn't know of anyone who was pro-choice. So when I was 24 and had just graduated from college at UC Berkeley and found out that I was pregnant, my first thought was, oh, I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to be a mom. And at the time, I was working at a bar, 
And normally at the end of our shift, you know, I'd have a drink with my coworker. But that night when I decided I wasn't going to have a drink, I told her, you know, that I was pregnant and I wasn't sure what I was going to do yet. And my friend Polly said that she'd had an abortion. And Polly was the first person who had ever told me that she'd had one. So it really opened the door for me in a lot of ways, just in terms of of knowing someone who'd had an abortion, but also the fact that she was willing and open to talk about it was two major things that put me on the path to eventually having an abortion, but mostly how why I founded Exhale and, and started Pro Voice. And you founded Exhale in 2000, I think is the year. You got it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's had its growth, its challenges. You describe them well in the book, Pro Voice. For you, how long was the distance between you had an abortion and you founded Excel? What was, what happened in between there? I had my abortion in the summer of 99, and it was about a year till we founded Exhale. So in that year, I did a lot of reading. I'm I'm historically... You know, a reader is how I learned about things. So I just like went to the library and I, I read a lot of books about abortion and was trying to figure out why is everyone fighting about this? Why aren't women who've had abortions talking about it? And I should also say that the degree I had just gotten in college was a peace and conflict studies degree. So I had just been spending time studying communities around the world who had overcome conflict and challenges of of all kinds. So I felt like I had had this abortion and we were in the middle of this cultural conflict about it in the United States. And so I took that peace and conflict studies lens to trying to understand it. Also in that year, I started talking to people. I started talking to people about my abortion. I started talking to people about the problem that I was seeing that no one is listening to women and trying to figure out what could be done about it. Initially, I thought, well, maybe I'll just start, you know, like a hotline and I'll refer women to therapists that they can call and go into therapy if that's what they want. But over the course of that year, I started meeting people who worked in different organizations, who worked at hotlines, who worked at advocacy organizations, and I realized that it was possible for me and other people to come together and build ourselves what was needed for other women who'd had abortions. So I spent the year figuring out who those people were. And then we came together and on the floor of a Berkeley apartment and we looked at each other and we said, what do we have here? And what what are our strengths and what do we believe? And how can we make something that meets a social and personal need? You know, you said no one was listening to women. And I think that's something that so few people catch on to. One might think that, oh, if you're pro-choice, you'd listen to women. Or maybe if you're pro-life because you're compassionate, you're going to listen to women. Your sense was that no one was listening to women. Is that true that on both those poles and in the middle, people just, it was out of sight, out of mind? I think there's big challenges to listening to women who've had abortions. And there are certainly listeners on both sides. And there are pro-life women who've had abortions and who have started support centers for other women who've had abortions. Oftentimes, those support centers are very narrow in their focus and religious-based, and specifically for women who regret or are traumatized by their abortion. 
And then often on the pro-choice side, it was like, well, you got one. And, you know, like you didn't have a back alley abortion. You got a, a safe legal abortion. And, you know, our concern is making sure that other people get safe legal abortions. So we're happy to have you in the fight, but that's about it. There's elements of both movements that only really prioritize and listen to some stories. So part of Exhale was saying we want to listen to all those stories. We want to hear from the woman who had the illegal abortion, and we want to hear from the woman who had the legal abortion and who felt great about it and who felt awful about it and who felt regret and who felt confused and who felt all of those things at once or whose feelings about it changed over time that we wanted to create a place that was respectful and supportive of a whole spectrum of experiences rather than just one or two. We probably should mention, Aspen, something about language that you choose to use in the book and how you choose to use it, I think, on the hotline as well. There is a tendency to dichotomize things in our society. You're either pro-life or you're pro-choice. And it's either a fetus or it's your unborn baby. What about the language that you like to use? What is, from your point of view, off that judgmental spectrum? I personally and my organization and pro-voice people reflect the language that people use to describe their own personal experience. So if somebody is telling me about their abortion and they use the term baby, then I will use the term baby in my conversation with them. If somebody is using the term shrimp or collection of cells or fetus, then I can also use all of those terms. That reflecting the language of the person who is speaking about their own experience is a way to convey that I'm paying attention and that I'm interested in understanding what she went through and how she perceives and identifies her experience. So reflecting language is a big part of what it means to be pro-voice. And if you're just speaking to the camera, it's an interview with some radio announcer from Wisconsin, what is the native language that you would choose to use? That's an excellent question. And what I try to do, and it's hard to be successful at it, is to use multiple terms and to really talk about the fact that women who have abortions will use the term baby and will use the term fetus. And what's hard, a lot of things are hard about that. One of the things that's hard about that is because abortion is stigmatized, women often haven't told people about their own experience and they haven't had much chance to really talk to other people. And so as often as I am trying very hard to reflect the fact that there's a full range of experiences and feelings, it's very difficult to actually do that. And that means that sometimes someone will say, well, you didn't, you know, I use this word and, and you didn't say that, you know, or I felt gratitude and you didn't say gratitude. So what that means, though, is that there's so little conversation about our personal experiences that women are hungry for the terminology, the feelings, the perspective that they have about their abortion be reflected back to them in some kind of way, that that reflection back is what helps somebody feel heard. And feeling heard is also really crucial to what it means to be pro-voice which is why it's so important that 
I am not the only pro-voice person or that exhale volunteers, that we are not the only ones because it is, would be impossible for us or for a, a simple organization to reflect back all of those unique experiences. So we need more people to, to be pro-voice so that women have a lot of different opportunities to talk and feel heard and respected for what they have experienced. So again, with your background is peace and conflict studies, a major that you've got this degree, you've had an abortion, people aren't listening, and I get the sense that it comes from your peace and conflict studies. You want to change that. And so in 2000, you become really a pioneer in this field. Were there other folks doing anything similar to what you wanted to do at that time? Had you had any clues that it could happen elsewhere? I think that we have always had some kindred spirits and unlikely allies. We've never had sort of like exactly someone trying to do the same things. But I do think that we have a lot in common with pro-life women who want to provide support to women who regret their abortions. I think that's incredibly valuable and important work. And I think since we started, there have been a growth of other kinds of support services that are associated with the pro-choice movement. So there's now things like abortion doulas who are with women as they go through abortions. And there's new hotlines that have since started after Exhale's hotline that provide a listening ear to women making pregnancy decisions Most of them are still sort of strongly aligned with one side or the other, but there's starting to be some common language about there's no one-size-fits-all solution, a common understanding that what women need is support and respect, and the ability to talk about their own experiences. So people on both sides or on all sides, as I would rather say, can see that that's true. I think there's also been efforts to change the conversation and to change the debate. But maybe not as many as you would think, given that this is such a huge conflict in our country for a long time. So a noted project was one done by the Public Conversations Project, where some pro-life and pro-choice people met in secret meetings for a long time out of Massachusetts. And similarly, when Exhale was starting to really articulate the pro-voice philosophy and way of thinking that another organization at the time called Asian Communities for Reproductive Justice, they're now called Forward Together, they started working on a framework called Reproductive Justice. So it was a much broader application of the social justice lens to reproductive issues. So that was happening at a similar time. So there's been, I think, a lot of efforts and a lot of movement, and a lot of it is grassroots, and a lot of it is sort of behind the scenes and difficult to hear or to see when so much of the political battle is kind of what takes up the space and sucks the air out of any political conversation. You know, Aspen, you're some 20 years younger than I am, so I actually lived through, I was freshman in college when Roe v. Wade happened. So this was very in my face at that time. So I saw this dialogue or lack of dialogue happen throughout my life. Because you come along some 20 years later, 
and Exhale starts up in 2000. What was the initial reaction? How did you do your dialogue? You started just maybe in the Bay Area first, is that correct? Started in the Bay Area with a local talk line that would be available to like six counties in the Bay Area. And I would love to talk about that, but I'm also, I would love to hear what you remember about when Roe v. Wade was passed and what your perception of the debate was at the time, if that's okay. Sure. Well, even before Roe v. Wade, there was a teacher I had in high school in my sophomore year who was a Democrat who did not, um, I think Democrats at that point already were aligned with abortion should be safe and legal point of view. And he was not on that page. So I think eventually he left the Democratic Party. So I I heard some of that. It's like, no, we've got to line up in the right column. I I saw that grow stronger and stronger throughout my life. And I saw the way that people tried to dodge the question or maybe just answer it honestly and were portrayed as dodging. So for instance, candidate would be asked, do you support abortion? And he says, I personally oppose abortion, but I don't think we should have laws about it. And people say, well, that's not answering the question. If you really had an opinion, you'd enforce it on others, I guess. So I, I watched that happen quite a bit. Now, I was a, a young man at the time that happened, and I was worried, am I going to produce a child when I'm not ready to have a child? And so I was definitely open. I would definitely be what you'd call pro-choice at that time, although you know, I became a vegetarian and was very concerned about life. And so I'm I'm wrestling with issues of what I can do in good conscience and, and all there. So I, I had to do my personal wrestling, except that for the most part, I was told, and I'd really love your comments on this too. I was told, Mark, you're a male. It's not your business. It's the woman's choice. You just support her no matter what goes on. And I'm going, wait a minute, that means I have to support her if she's going to have the baby and I've got to pay support for the rest of my life. And if I want to have this child and she doesn't want to, I've just got to stand by. I was definitely wrestling with it from a male point of view, too. So, you know, I I watched a number of those things go on. Now, as I got older, had my own child in the 80s and became very aware that people weren't listening and that they were trying to make it black and white. And it didn't feel black and white to me. It felt complex. And you talk about that so well, Aspen, in the book, about the gray areas that you live in, the fact that you have to walk in someone else's shoes. You said about your own abortion in the book, you said you would never believed you would kill your baby until you did it. You know, that that kind of thought, it's like, wow, uh, yeah. And until you're in those shoes, you don't know what really is important for you to decide. So anyway, I definitely avoided thinking about it enough myself, but I watched the society fight about it and I wondered if there wasn't a better way. So I'm so glad to discover that Aspen Baker and Exhale and that there's a number of people who are are looking for the third or the fourth or fifth way that we could approach this. I think that you said so many interesting things about this back up against the wall, this idea that you have to be all for it or all against it. And that's part of that simplification of it's one way or the other, it's black or it's white. And in reality, it's actually very complex. The complexity is maybe our friend here. 
as we think about how to change the conversation. Because as I talk to a lot of people about Pro Voice, and I think the first thing people desire is what can we fix this? How do we do it? Can we, you know, this side should give up this, and the other side should give up this, and then boom, it's done. We have some sort of rational, some sort of pragmatic solution, and everyone can just get behind it. And it's like everyone has an idea for how to fix it. And there is an assumption that it should be simple and that it should be easy. I think if that were the case, then it would already be done, and I wouldn't be here on the radio talking to you or writing a book about pro-voice because if fixing the abortion conflict was so simple and easy, it would have happened a long time ago. And so we have to acknowledge the fact that it's not simple and it's not easy and it is complex. And going into the complexity and going into the gray areas can feel very chaotic and can feel scary and risky when you let go of the safety of your side. And yet it's in those gray areas where we have found the most opportunity to gain a fresh perspective or new insights about how to move forward. And what I talk about in the book is how to use listening and storytelling practices in that gray area as a way to figure out how to move forward. Well, this complex discussion you're listening to, folks, is with Aspen Baker. She is author of a new book, Pro Voice, How to Keep Listening When the World Wants a Fight. You will find Aspen on aspenbaker.com, or you can find the organization she's connected with, exhaleprovoice.org. This is Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find almost 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests, so you can connect with Aspen through northernspiritradio.org. There's a place for you to post comments, and we do love two-way communication, very much in connection with what Aspen is trying to have happen, real deep listening. There's also a place to make donations. That's how we support Northern Spirit Radio. It is full-time work, but even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, I'd ask that you support your local community radio station. They provide you a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else in the American spectrum on the American airwaves. So please start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Aspen Baker is here. Pro Voice, how to keep listening when the world wants a fight. And I don't want to fight with you, Aspen, but I do want to ask you difficult questions. We're both peace-oriented and wanting to listen deeply. I was just wondering if there's a reason why the conversation around abortion is different from or similar to other areas where, you know, if you're pro-war or anti-war, is it the same conversation? Is it you just, what you really just have to do is listen to people's stories? Why is abortion so different? I think you could have a lot of people on this show to give you a lot of different answers about that. I don't know that we can know or sort of say, oh, it's because of sexuality or, oh, it's because of this or because of that. I think it is all of those things. You know, often people make the connection between abortion and gay marriage, and that's certainly an interesting one to be made. Abortion is not an identity. It's not... You know, it's connected to being in a woman for sure, but it, it is an experience that's gone through and it is connected to a decision that is made. And so often I think that what women who have abortions have more in common with 
people who have been on welfare or people who have committed crimes, that we can look at those people and say, you did something wrong, that you ended up in this place. And that is an area that demands that we have a lot of empathy and a lot of compassion instead of judgment. But often in our culture, all of those things are incredibly judged and incredibly stigmatized with huge consequences. Are there areas, are there subjects for discussion, controversy, where you think that the morality is really important and that it would be important to get up on your bully pulpit and inveigh about why we should make this decision or not make this decision? Are there other topics that do deserve that kind of fervent discussion? I think that pro-voice is incredibly moral, and I think it's an incredibly strong and passionate stand, actually. And I think we are very passionate about compassion, and we are very fierce about empathy, and we take a stand of connection across the difference. So across being pro-choice or pro-life or across being of different racial backgrounds or different economic classes, that our stand is for connection and for listening and that it is not an easy stand to take. And it's very interesting. And I kind of explored this a little bit in my book too around nonviolence, that nonviolence can both be perceived as passive and feminine and wishy-washy, but also strong and macho and moral. So finding this other way of being in the midst of these polar opposites, I think we often get accused of sort of not having morality or not taking a stand, but I I think we have a very, very strong stand. It's just in a different way than what's currently in the conflict. Actually, what I was aiming for, Aspen, was, (laughs) and I know it's a a terribly difficult place to go to, is uh, 1976, I became a vegetarian. And I think for the first year or two that I was a vegetarian, I was pretty insufferable. I was very self-righteous. And I w- someone would eat a hamburger and I'd go moo and, you know, I'd be obnoxious in various ways because I was so sure, you know, this new light that had dawned for me. I've softened that behavior quite a bit and don't feel judgmental in the same way. But it was an area where I perceived as something being right and something being wrong. And certainly around abortion, people feel that same way. Are there areas, topics that it does make sense to stand up and say, no, we won't put up with this? You're saying that, no, we won't put up with women not being listened to. I can get behind you there. Are there other areas? I think a couple, I mean, Today, we all know about this tragic murder of nine black people by a white boy in a South Carolina church. We can easily take a stand that that is wrong and that racism is wrong. And I think one of the things that pro-voice can offer is the importance of listening in a moment like this especially for white people to be listening to the experiences of black people and people of color who are feeling targeted and feeling attacked, that there is a moment in our country where we are having a national conversation about our identities and our experiences. And we might want it to be 
rational and come up with explanations, but we don't have those totally yet. And an important thing to do is to listen very closely. There's, I want to backtrack in, in the book somewhere that something you said that struck me as amazingly insightful. And again, I lived through this history about abortion, but you describe about part of the evolution of the pro-choice side of the argument or pro-choice side of this opinion and a tactic that they chose to take, which was essentially the conservative side. Could you say a little bit about that, about how it, well, it stunned me to think that it actually happened. So after the 60s and 70s, which most people think of as at this very liberal time in the country, that there was what is perceived as a conservative backlash. When Reagan was elected, the war on drugs, changes in sentencing guidelines, which you know, to this day have produced these huge rates of mass incarceration. So this conservative tide started, and the pro-choice movement was fighting for survival in response to the pro-life backlash. And there was an idea that rather than fighting for abortion access and rather than sort of talking about abortion as a fundamental human right or, or women's right, that the thing to do would be to tie the need for abortion as a right of keeping the government out of our lives and decisions. So there was an effort in the South that connected keeping the government out of our bedrooms around abortion to the way that we might want to keep the government out of decisions around guns. And so it was a very conservative sort of libertarian framework that allowed the pro-choice movement a political win that was not really about women's rights, but was more about privacy and keeping the government out. This was a problem on a lot of levels, but in particular for women of color who were trying to get the government more involved in increasing access for communities of color to health services. So that moment put the pro-choice movement on a trajectory. So to this day, many of the messages that we hear about keep your laws off my body, not your business, it's personal, it's private, is a, is a very keep out message, which for women who've had abortions, for some that can feel affirming, but it isn't exactly an invitation to be open about the experience of abortion. It's not an invitation to sort of tell someone your story and, you know, as a person who's had an abortion, does it feel good for me to drive down the street and see someone's bumper sticker that says pro-choice, not pro-abortion? You know, like, okay, <laughs> I guess you have my back maybe, I don't know. <laughs> so that there's a lot of mixed messages about what this means. I wanted to inject something. I did an interview back in 2008 or 2009 with a woman named Rachel McNair, and actually someone's Stan Becker, about abortion. And so they're talking from different perspectives, but in a peaceable Quaker way, if you will. They talked about the issues. And one thing that Rachel told me that I was just a little bit stunned about, and I don't know if this was historically was true as much as in 2008-9 when she talked about it. She talked about going to pro-life conventions, and by that I mean people who were opposed to having or wanted restrictions on abortion or wanted it not to be legal, that kind of thing. But she said that there were groups of women that would gather together 
to talk about their experience with abortion. So they were actually telling themselves their abortion stories. I, and I thought that somehow that would be absolutely the last thing one could do at a pro-life convention. Had you heard about that kind of thing? Is that the kind of thing? Does that just go counter to what you've maybe assumed or founded Exhale based on? In many ways, the the pro-life movement has opened the doors for women to talk about their abortions. So after I had my abortion and I wanted to go talk to somebody, I looked around and I found a lot of pro-life, Christian-based support services and none on the pro-choice side. What I discovered was that there had there is a movement of women who'd had abortions that feel like it wasn't the right thing to do, who feel regretful about it, who feel traumatized by it and wanted to help other women who have gone through that and make sure other women don't feel that way too. And so their experiences have also been politicized against abortion. And so when we started Exhale, that was sometimes people thought that we were the same as that. Well, if you're talking about abortion, if you're doing counseling for women who've had abortions, then you must be pro-life because that's the only ones that are doing it. We wanted to be this place that was available to pro-life women and also to pro-choice women and to make sure that we weren't politicizing those experiences in a way that the women didn't want to be politicized and making sure that they had a place free of politics to do that. So it's not surprising to me at all. You said that you back in 2000 when you started Exhale and you opened up in six counties, people would call in and get support. And you described that in some more detail in the book, Pro Voice. I was left wondering, is that something that was okay for me as a man to call into? And would any of your volunteers actually be men? Is that okay? Women talking about their abortion to a man might not be considered to be acceptable or something. And and yet as a man, if my partner had an abortion, who do I call? So could you talk about that complex of men, women, who listens to whom and how you do that? Sure. It's interesting because that part is not actually that complex for us, that we have always welcomed men to call our talk line. And our very first caller ever was a man who was a father and who had recently learned about his teenage daughter's abortion and he wanted to talk to her about it and he didn't know how. So since then, about 8% of our calls every year are from men and we do have male counselors. It's not the majority of our counselors, it's a handful. And women call and and talk to a male counselor. If they don't want to talk to a man, they can ask to speak to a woman and that can happen really easily. But often it works out just fine. (laughs) It can be nice (laughs) to have a man listen to you on the talk line. And we certainly have men call, and sometimes the men will get the male counselor, and sometimes they talk to the woman. And, you know, across the board, what our counselors are trained to do is to listen and be there and be a witness for somebody as they're going through whatever their emotions are. There's a quotation that you use in the preface. It's by Mary Lou Kaunaki, I believe it's pronounced. You describe her as Catholic, pro-life, anti-war feminist, peace crusader. And you quote her as saying, there isn't anyone you couldn't love once you've heard their story. 
and to a, a large degree, that's my own heart. You're, she's speaking, and that you're quoting there. Is that your experience? Have you had experience with the people who listened to the story and then said, "No, damn you to hell, anyhow"? You know. Yeah, it just happened to me the other day. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> um, so I was doing, yeah, I was doing like a live internet chat and. I was talking about having an abortion and talking about listening and, you know, you get live feedback in the moment and certainly lots of people were like, that sounds great. And then there was a number of people who were like, that's awful. You're a bad person. Just going to keep saying that over and over again. So of course, and I would not also say that the internet is always a great place to have real dialogue. My organization worked with five women in 2013 to support them as they traveled the country in telling their stories to strangers, to people in churches and in colleges and in community centers and in different parts of the country, including Milwaukee. And one of the women that we worked with is from Milwaukee. And we were in places that didn't necessarily agree with what the women were doing. And by agree, I mean from both sides. There were audiences that were deeply uncomfortable listening to people talk about their abortions because they felt like abortion was such a wrong thing to do. And there were other people that were deeply uncomfortable listening because there was no political conclusion, that it wasn't being used to get people to support abortion rights. So we found discomfort on both sides. We certainly found in some of the audience, and you know, not, not everybody, that because the storytellers were not just telling their stories, but they were actively listening to the experiences of their audiences so they could provide empathy to their audience who felt uncomfortable. And so in that way, they could role model what it like to listen to something even if you didn't agree with it. And so we found that people responded to feeling heard <laughs> and could then respect and better listen to the experience of the women and you know, I think a couple of the comments that we got that have really stuck with us is, you know, a woman saying, I came into this workshop wearing my armor. I was ready to duke it out. But after going through this workshop, it turns out I didn't need my armor after all. Or another young woman who is pro-life and says, and was in a more liberal college, and she said, well, I usually feel left out of these discussions, but I was actually a valued participant of this conversation, and I could see myself potentially being in their shoes one day. Somebody else saying, you know, I've always had this political conversation about abortion, but next time somebody talks to me, I'm just going to listen to them as a person. And one of the things you talk about, Aspen, in the book is tools, listening, storytelling, and embracing gray areas. And you talk about how to storytell. And one of the things that you shared as part of the whole story there was the experience of being asked for some women to make contributions that are going to be used as part of a documentary. Your whole <laughs> trepidation going forward on that and the, the mixed feelings about it. What's important to do or not do as part of storytelling in this kind of case? It's so important that the storyteller have control over their own story and have control over when and how their story is going to be used. So a woman who has an abortion and has a story to tell is frankly a hot commodity for both sides. 
depending on what her story is, if she felt bad about it or if she felt great about it. There are advocates that want that story. And she might be very passionate about one side or, or the other and want to use her story for advocacy purposes. She still gets the right to have some decision making over how her story gets used. She also gets to change her mind if she doesn't want her story used anymore. And what is important for advocates who want to use stories is to really understand that they're dealing with people and not a marketing slogan. So they need to work with people and realize that often our stories aren't simple talking points and that there's complexity there. And it might not always feel like an easy fit for the political message they're trying to get across. But when an advocate can use a real story about a real person who's being open and honest about their experience, that is the invitation to conversation that so many advocates need. And there's so many areas in our country where we need some kind of dialogue ability, particularly obviously with our National Congress being unable to meet anywhere except party line votes, you know, just dividing. And here in Wisconsin, we have a what I see as a terrible case with that. You see this method of pro-voice as not being limited to abortion. It could be applied in a number of places. And you talk about that toward the end of the book. Would you care to mention some of those where you see it would be particularly applicable? Sure. I think that pro-voice can be used around our conversations around gender and race, and especially with the increased visibility of transgender people about how we can have a listening, connecting conversation around that instead of one that's afraid and judgmental. And same thing about race and racism, about how we listen to people who are different than us and have different experiences of the police, for example. When people talk about how to apply pro-voice in areas beyond abortion, there's usually sort of two ways that people respond. One is either something that matters to them in their life right now, something that's very personal, something that's very hard to talk about. Sexual assault, sexuality are, are certainly things that come up. The other way that people respond to pro-voice is sort of these bigger issues, like how can we use this on gun control? How can we use this on climate change? How can we use this on online conversations to make them more meaningful and less harassing? So all of those ways, both the intimate, personal, how do we talk about things that are hard to talk about, and the bigger political, we're entrenched in conflict, how do we use probable ways to open conversations that have formally been closed? Well, I know, Aspen, that you have to go on to another conversation right now. So I appreciate the fact that I, I understand I'm the third in a row for you. Three one-hour conversations is a lot to give. And I'd hate to see a pro-voice person lose their voice. <laughs> <laughs> How compassionate. <laughs> I, I hope to be. Folks, we've been speaking with Aspen Baker. You can find her at her website, aspenbaker.com. The organization she helped found is Exhale, and exhaleprovoice.org is another place to find it. She's doing peace work, and Aspen, I appreciate that so much, the deep listening. I do think that there's a way forward 
when we listen deeply to one another. And it's so wonderful to see someone who's raising that up and giving us a possibility for a peaceful future for our country. So thanks so much for doing that and for joining me for the third one hour of talking for Spirit in Action. I really enjoyed myself and I appreciate your questions and appreciate your commitment to listening. It's really a breath of fresh air. Thanks so much, Aspen. We have just a minute or so left, so I want to leave you with just a portion of a song by a perennial favorite of mine, Holly Near, about compassionate presence with another in the face of the big issues. So here's Holly Near, Sit With Me, and I'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.